2: Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, March 26th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the death toll of COVID-19-related deaths rises. We talk with a medical professional on the status of the pandemic in Mississippi and what precautions pregnant women should take to protect themselves and their baby from the coronavirus. Then the challenges of distance learning in disconnected regions of the state. Plus, in today's book club, Those Who Know, Don't Say examines the post-war black freedom movement. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Five people in Mississippi have died from the coronavirus as it continues to spread. The state health department reports the most recent deaths are a Tunica County woman and a man from Wilkinson County who died from the virus. Deaths have also been reported in Hancock, Webster and Holmes counties. Dr. Jimmy Stewart is with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He tells our Desiree Frazier he's concerned about the deaths, but says right now the mortality rate in Mississippi remains relatively low.
0: Unfortunately, this is this is predictable based on other places uh, in the nation that are a little bit ahead of, ahead of us in Mississippi uh, and certainly the the world. Um, but one of the good things about this is that our mortality rate or the death rate is is looking like it's a little bit less than other places, a lot of other countries.
3: Are you seeing any pattern with how it's spreading?
0: Uh, so. Patterns right now are a little hard to track just because of our limitations on testing. Uh, What we know as far as larger pattern groups is it's through those mechanisms of uh, either close contact with individuals who have it, Um, but as far as nailing it down to, uh, you know, any geographic area. Uh, At this point, uh, we don't have all the the granularity of that to say how it's traveling from person to person in different settings.
3: I did notice looking at the Mississippi uh, State Department of Health website, there's more than 30 cases in DeSoto County and Hines County, And and there may be several others, but is there a reason why there would be more in those pockets?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of, if you think about those two counties and which cities are in those counties, there's a a, uh, much more dense population of people. Anytime you have people in close proximity to each other in in, uh, larger cities and communities, you're going to have more of a risk of transmitting the virus. So, particularly with DeSoto County and Hines, if you think about the people in the Jackson metropolitan area and surrounding communities, Madison, Ridgeland, uh, those are all high population uh, densities, and certainly you could predict that more people would have the virus in those communities.
3: And we did hear from the state health officer that there are still people that are not isolating themselves, that are not practicing social distancing. Is that creating havoc
0: Uh, I wouldn't say that it's creating havoc, but yeah, it's definitely um, a lot of people I think are taking this lightly. Uh, even if you yourself are low risk, we are still seeing a very low percentage, but some individuals who are younger, who don't have chronic medical conditions that are either have to be hospitalized or in some situations, uh, that are in the ICU setting. So, uh, you know, worldwide we've seen that. We've seen that in the United States as well and other, uh, in other states, uh, where individuals who have lower risk are uh, can have uh, a more severe course with with COVID-19. So because of that, we need to take this seriously. Everybody needs to do their part. Uh, if you have a group of individuals that are taking it lightly and not doing some of the things that we need to do, uh, that's just gonna put all of us at risk and it's gonna put those um, elderly individuals who have chronic medical problems at more of a risk.
3: Now that, say, uh, a person passes from uh, this virus, is it necessary to cremate the body in order to prevent any transmission?
0: No, that that would not be necessary. Certainly there need to be precautions with uh, someone who's passed, uh, who had COVID-19, but uh, not to the point where you'd have to cremate the body. Uh, There's certainly other ways that to uh, to protect uh, those who are preparing the body for burial, uh, but that's that's not been a, a necessity that you do that to prevent transmission.
3: Is there anything that I didn't ask you that's important to note?
0: Uh, certainly, children can contract the virus. Um, again, they tend to have a less complicated course of it. Uh, generally, these types of viruses, the coronaviruses cause colds uh, during this time period on a routine basis. Uh, We've known about them since the 60s. Um, This particular one, though, just has more severe effects, particularly in the elderly. But certainly children can contract it. They tend to have uh, milder symptoms, so usually a cold-like symptom, but they can still transmit that virus to others in the family and whoever they come into contact with.
3: Can you anticipate when this is going to hit a peak and start to decline?
0: I wish I could do that. (laughs) Uh, I think everybody would like to say, uh, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, whatever the time period. Uh, We just don't. uh, A a pandemic like this, you really just don't have the uh, scientific wherewithal to, to really predict that with any certainty.
3: Well, Dr. Jimmy Stewart with the University of Mississippi Medical Center, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us about this issue. Thank you.
0: Sure. Thank you, Desiree.
2: To stay current on the latest developments concerning the coronavirus in Mississippi, visit mpbonline.org slash coronavirus. Coming up, what precautions pregnant women should take to protect themselves and their baby from the coronavirus? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A Mississippi doctor is working to get the word out that pregnant women should follow their health care providers' guidelines to prevent contracting the coronavirus. Dr. Michelle Owens is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She tells our Desiree Frazier, pregnant women, like the elderly, are vulnerable to the virus.
1: There has been a lot of information that has been shared with the public about vulnerable populations, and I think that it's really important that everybody realize that pregnant women are vulnerable populations. That's for the pregnant women themselves and also um, for the rest of the population to understand that they are vulnerable. Um, While it does not appear that uh, pregnancy increases the likelihood that a woman will be infected with COVID-19. We do know that pregnant women are particularly vulnerable to infections and just as with influenza and other types of respiratory illnesses, they can make pregnant women especially ill. So we have really tried to get the word out to everyone that pregnant women represent a vulnerable population and they should take every precaution to uh, limit their exposures.
3: And so everything that they're telling the broader public to do, they should do as well. Is there anything additional? So, um, you know, I think one of the questions that has come up a lot is
1: for uh, pregnant women and how do they how do they work, or should we make special accommodations for them? And that really needs to be determined on a case-by-case basis, because, again, if there are additional medical complications or women who are working within high-risk situations, then modifications to their work environment or limiting the um, exposures that they would have to infected people is definitely recommended. However, at this time, uh, the CDC, the does not have any specific guidelines that would limit pregnant women uh, from doing their uh, most of their regular jobs. But again, that really is going to depend on the specifics of that particular individual's job description and also any other risk factors that they may
3: have. Is there anything known about the potential to infect the fetus?
1: So, um, there has not been, and I'm glad you asked that question, there's not been any evidence that shows that vertical transmission occurs. Um, now, once the baby is born, all of the regular standard precautions apply, and it's just as if the mom had any other viral illness, the baby would have to be, in some instances, separated from the mom after birth um, so that you could minimize the likelihood that there would be um, infection of the baby, just like with anybody else who would be in close contact, but not specifically because of pregnancy or by being inside of mom. That does not increase the risk for the baby at this time.
3: Are you getting calls from concern soon-to-be moms? Um, So not so
1: much the concerns soon to be moms, um, but definitely from the people who who are currently pregnant. Um, Again, this is still a situation that we don't we're still learning. Uh, The good thing is that this virus has been present in other populations before it started to rise in the united states so we've had the benefit of being able to learn from what we've seen in other areas so yes we um, are getting concerns more from the people who are seeing every day people who are concerned about the community spread and their risks as being a person in the community Um, and so what we've been advising everyone is again listen to what's being said, and the social distancing is important. If you have the capacity to work or to stay at home, please do so. And for for those women who are pregnant who don't have the capacity to do that or who work in healthcare and those other things, you just need to make sure that you are washing your hands, taking every precaution to limit the possibility of you being exposed to the virus.
3: Is there any way that say there was a pregnant mom who was sick, she gives birth to the baby, could the breast milk um, have the virus in it? So
1: there's no virus that gets into breast milk, and we are actually encouraging mothers to continue to breastfeed. So say the mom is, is infected, she gives birth, and she very much desires to breastfeed. Those mothers can actually pump milk and have the milk be given to their babies by an uninfected person or under certain circumstances with a mask and other protective um, equipment, the mother might actually be able to feed their baby. Now, that's going to depend on, of course, the age of the baby, the mother's illness, and those kinds of things. But those are two options that exist for moms who want to continue to participate in breastfeeding, which is great, not only for the bonding piece, but also that continues to confer health benefits to their baby.
3: Well, Dr. Michelle Owens, we appreciate your time and speaking with us about this. Thank you so much.
1: No, thank you so much for having me.
2: Coming up, the challenges of distance learning in disconnected regions of the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Michelle McAdoo. Join me along with Tara Ren for a special program... Mississippi Education Connection, a show dedicated to providing educational resources for teachers, parents, and students. This week, our guest will be Dr. Carrie Wright, State Superintendent of Education. We'll discuss the coronavirus pandemic and its effects on the educational system in Mississippi. That's Mississippi Education Connection, this Friday at 10 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Schools across Mississippi remain closed in an effort to slow the spread of the coronavirus, but many districts are now facing a dilemma. How to provide remote learning to students in areas that lack Internet service. MPB's Alexandra Watts reports.
3: Thank you, Hold it up.
4: Lucy Webb Elementary School in Greenville is open for two reasons this afternoon. For students to pick up grab-and-go meals, and for parents, like Tawanda Williams, to pick up printed packets for her three children. I'm coming to get uh, the uh, learning pack. I guess it'll go last April and still learn Why they're out. Last week, Governor Tate Reeves closed all public schools in the state to help slow the spread of the coronavirus. While schools are closed, classes are not canceled. Districts are now turning to online instruction to keep
5: students engaged. We definitely have packets from pre-K through 8th grade. Our high school has done a little bit more throughout the year in using the Google Classroom as well as just technology as a whole.
4: Deborah Dace is the interim superintendent of Greenville Public School District. Distance learning can be problematic in rural areas where Wi-Fi and other technology is not readily available. Right now, Dace says the district is surveying families on what Internet access they have, so appropriate
5: technology can be provided. Once we get that data and we know which families need the laptops or the devices, we're going to try to deploy those out within the next week or so. Good afternoon. Before we begin, I want to just tag
4: a couple of people. That's Tremaine Johnson, a sixth grade teacher in the Holmes County Consolidated School District. Every afternoon, Mr. Johnson connects with his students on Facebook Live. All right, so we were at the guided practice park. Many of the students have access to mobile devices, and Johnson says that makes it easier for him to engage with
5: students on Facebook. I talked to some of my parents, and they said Facebook was the easiest to access. Well, lately, I do one lesson per day. I email them the packet before I go live, just like I'm teaching a regular class. Again, tomorrow, don't forget, students, come and pick up your Chromebooks. Great. Johnson says he can't see the students while he's teaching, but they are commenting and interacting in the moment. They are really talking back. They're really responding. I even get messages, slow down, you're going too fast. And so they are really listening and they're really trying So be interactive, really. Those who
4: are streaming from a mobile device could incur expensive data charges. But Northern District Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley is working to change that. So I've called upon
0: the carriers to do away with data caps during this period so that students that have to live stream a session or a professor or a teacher are able to do so without fear of some exorbitant bill that's to come in
4: according to the federal communications commission 70 percent of mississippians have broadband access but in rural areas like the mississippi delta only about half of residents have access to the internet presley says he's asking companies like t-mobile and C-Spire to provide internet access to families in north mississippi but the coronavirus has highlighted
0: really this deep deep digital divide that exists in mississippi and we've got to get it fixed Internet service today is a fact and a requirement in modern life, the same as electricity is. Imagine if right now, during this crisis, we had areas that had electricity maybe an hour a day, maybe two hours a day. Think about that now in terms of Internet service.
4: But as communities figure out Internet access, educators like Tremaine Johnson are dedicated to one thing, making sure their students
5: are learning. Students are just as nervous as we are. So I wanted to let my students know, hey, I'm still here for you. I'm still going to give you the best that I have. We made a pledge that we were going to give each other our best to be successful. That's so why I wanted them to know that I'm still going to do my part, and I know they're going to do their part as well.
2: Alexandra Watts,
5: MPB News.
2: On Friday, March 27th at 10 o'clock, MPB Think Radio will be premiering Mississippi Education Connection, a special program designed to provide resources for teachers, parents, and students throughout the state during the coronavirus pandemic. The show's first guest will be State Superintendent of Education, Dr. Carrie Wright. Hosts Michelle McAdoo and MPB's Education Director Tara Wren will discuss the disruptions the virus has caused in education and will take questions from our listeners. Tune in tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Coming up in today's book club selection, Those Who Know, Don't Say examines the post-war black freedom movement. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, auto Correct. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The post-war Black Freedom Movement focused as much on policing and prisons as on school desegregation and voting rights. In his book, Those Who Know Don't Say, Garrett Felber, an assistant professor of history at the University of Mississippi, examines the Nation of Islam, the Black Freedom Movement, and the carceral state.
6: The focus of the book is really looking at ways that we can see the Nation of Islam as engaged in political activism during the civil rights era. And what I'm arguing is that the place we can find that is in its anti-carceral organizing, which is uh, specifically around anti-prison work and anti-police
2: violence. Was the Black nationalist movement successful on some levels?
6: So the, the Nation of Islam specifically um, was a catalyst for what we see as the modern-day prisoners' rights movement. So in the book, I chronicle uh, the organizing that was happening at Attica prison, for example, in 1961, a decade before the Attica uprising of 71. So a lot of the fights for constitutional rights of prisoners that was happening during the 1960s led to what we see as the modern day prisoners' rights movement.
2: Do you make that connection from that period of time to the present?
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the organizing that happened then has legacies today as well as the repression. So there's, for example, the work that the Nation of Islam did inside prisons to bring about constitutional rights led to this blossoming of the prisoners' rights movement, specifically around prison litigation and things like the Prison Litigation Reform Act of of the 1990s tough-on-crime era were also rollbacks of some of those gains. So I think there's, there's echoes today in terms of the successes of the movement as well as the repression that the state made to those gains.
2: Malcolm X... He was a controversial figure in this country. He was feared by many people. And I'm wondering if that was a positive thing or, or was it negative in terms of his influence?
6: He would often sort of understand that his role, in some sense, was a boogeyman to Martin Luther King. He knew that he scared the white establishment and white people. And he often would sort of joke that this might make people more amenable to Dr. King's message. But Malcolm, as a controversial figure, I think, relies on a sort of misunderstanding of his politics about him as advocating violence rather than self-defense. And the other thing I would note is that he was never the leader of the Nation of Islam. He consistently said that he was a national spokesperson, but that Elijah Muhammad was the leader. So even that kind of narrative of him as the leader of the Nation of Islam was something that the media cultivated along with law enforcement, to create divisions within the organization.
2: Can you define the carceral state for us?
6: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of definitions of the carceral state, and they're sort of competing, um, but largely the, the infrastructure of the U.S. state that is designed for punishment. So here I'm talking most specifically about prisons and policing, but obviously the carceral state goes into education, the foster care system, and all sorts of other ways that the state engages in punitive
2: action there are others you talk about in your book in regard to that big picture and the carceral state. Can you talk about some of those individuals?
6: Sure. So one of the figures who comes through in the book quite a bit is uh, Martin X. Sostre. And Martin Sastre was a well-known political figure in the late 60s and early 70s as a political prisoner who was framed during the uprising in Buffalo. But the period I talk about him in is what he would define as a politicized prisoner. So he converted to the Nation of Islam while incarcerated in the 1950s, became a jailhouse lawyer and really was one of the lead activists pushing forward these prison litigation cases. Part of what I look at in the book is the way that incarcerated Muslims sort of engaged with better known figures like Malcolm X, but how these grassroots struggles were really led by people we may not remember today.
2: What do you hope readers take away from this book?
6: Well, one of the phrases that I hear often as we think about prison abolition today is that this is the civil rights movement of our time. And I guess to reframe that, getting readers to think about the way that fighting prisons and policing was also central to what we think of as the actual civil rights movement. So understanding the role that the carceral state plays in repression long before even the rise of what we call mass incarceration is certainly one of the things I hope people take from it.
2: Garrett Felber is the author of Those Who Know, Don't Say, The Nation of Islam, The Black Freedom Movement, and the Carceral State, Justice, Power, and Politics. Thank you very much, Garrett. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.